it is a myth that the average Joe doesn't care about data. It's not that they don't care about data, they just care about their context and you have to speak to them in their context. It's a myth that you need a burning platform to motivate people. I would argue that instead you need a better future. Those are the words of our guest today, Michelle Hoiseth. Michelle is the Chief Data Officer and Senior Vice President at Parexcel, a clinical research organization that works with pharmaceutical companies to develop new medicines. According to Michelle, it costs $2.5 billion over two years to bring a new medicine to market. And that cost is expected to grow. A few years ago, Parexcel became a privately owned company in part to address this challenge head on. This moment gave Michelle and her team a unique opportunity to invest in their technological infrastructure and modernize their data practices. More fundamentally, it gave them a chance to transform their culture, putting data at the heart of how they make decisions. It was necessary work, and she's not done yet. So today on Data Radicals, Michelle is going to use her experiences at Parexcel to do some myth-busting. Creating an organization with a healthy data enablement was essential to Parexcel's bottom line, and she has so many learnings to share with us. When she encountered resistance, Michelle and her team didn't insist it was their way or the highway. They didn't stand on a desk and scream that the sky was falling. Instead, they listened to objections. They led with empathy and understanding. And Michelle can tell the story a lot better than I can. So let's get to some myth-busting. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Michelle Hoiseth, Chief Data Officer at Parexcel. In this episode, she and Satyan discuss the challenges of clinical research, creating a data culture, and how creating actionable results can create buy-in across an organization. Data Radicals is brought to you by the generous support of Alation. Alation gives enterprises the tools to make data-driven decisions and grow a data culture. Our data catalog can minimize the time workers spend searching for and worrying about the data they need to do their jobs, turning months of frustration into minutes of action. Visit alation.com. That's alation with a A.com today. Michelle and I began our conversation by discussing Parexcel's biggest challenges. Right now, it, it takes about 12 years and about two, two and a half billion dollars to uh, bring a medicine to patients. And that, you know, is anticipated over the next 15 to 20 years to be another five years longer and 20 billion. So it's an unsustainable trajectory. And so as an industry, we have to find a way to leverage the data that's available to us um, on populations, on patients and, and design better studies perhaps conduct fewer studies because we're using the healthcare data and do a better job. Yeah. What is it that in your industry, if you were to describe or you were to describe from your management teams, your executive team's perspective, what are the biggest challenges that Parexcel faces as a provider and the industry faces at large? Where do you, where do you, where are the opportunities and the risks moving forward for the organization? We have to do a better job you know, designing studies that sort of fit within our patients' lives, that really address their needs, that capture data around the impact of a treatment on them, 
that matters to them, not just matters to us or to regulators as to whether that drug, you know, is um, associated with a certain treatment effect, but their sense of wellness from the therapy is also captured. So that re requires us to use data differently. It requires us to engage with patient communities differently. If I expand that to the industry, we're all competing for the same patients, right? So protocols that really balance the needed scientific rigor and regulatory rigor with being very patient-centric win, right? Those are much more accessible studies to patients. So that's a, an issue we all face and one that we're all trying to solve for. The other, you know, point that derives from that is that we have to be able to use more data and more analytics to do a better job. And then the last part, I, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now and therapies are developed worldwide. You know, we don't develop therapies just for the U.S. They're always in, you know, protocols are always in 8, 10, 15 or more countries, right? And between COVID and geopolitics and other things, we have to stay very nimble in today's world and do what's best to, to get the study done well with the integrity we need. And so how does data come into play in that environment? I mean, you would think that an institution like Parkcell would be data native day one. Is that, so tell us about what, what did it look like, you know, when you started at the company and how have things evolved? So remember that the data that you generate through the course of executing a study is associated with the product that you're studying, right? So you'll have the investigational product, you know, that you're, controlling for, and you'll have placebo or some other control arm. Well, that data is all part of the, the intellectual property, so to speak, of that, you know, it belongs with that asset. It's, it really is talking about the performance of that investigational asset in the target population, which means that that data was always owned by Johnson & Johnson or Gilead, whomever we were executing the research for, right? And so as an industry, CROs, I would argue, grew up as temp always temporary stewards of somebody else's data. And as a consequence, we were a little bit slow as an industry to realize we were forming, we were developing data in our management systems that actually had value and could inform, better inform the design of clinical research, for example, for that next generation of compounds in that therapy. We didn't invest in the way that we needed to early enough with respect to systems architecture, enterprise data models, controls, you know. We were a little bit behind, I think, other industries. We in Paracel were actually really behind. We were slow to realize that. And so by the time we uh, realized that we weren't treating our data as an asset, we had a lot of ground we had to make up. Yeah, and I would imagine that so in this world, every project is a snowflake and every data asset is effectively owned by your end client, which is the pharma. And so, you know, this idea of being able to create learning and structure across experiments probably was really hard because in a $2.5 billion project, people's careers live and die probably during the evolution of that singular project. So this idea of crossing across is very limited, right? I mean, there's just probably not a lot of people who see the lifespan of multiple projects over, over time, or at least you only see a few in your career. Each protocol is a snowflake, but the data does really kind of group into categories of, of data that have different utility. And so 
Well, the data associated with all of the patients that enrolled in that phase three diabetes study are part of the differentiation of that particular asset and go with that. All of the data that forms around the execution, how long it took you to enroll that study, what the eligibility criteria were, you know, what countries did enrolled well versus not, that builds over time and that becomes the basis for operational modeling that helps you improve the next time you do another diabetes study, right? That's the piece that we had to get together and mastered. It was, you know, for us, all of our systems, anything we licensed in our past, we licensed for a particular business function. That business function had become the de facto administrator and the system and set up the data definitions, the data models within the system, set up the architecture. And as we began to flow data from one system to the other, we would have the inevitable you know, clashes and collisions, the inability to get to an oracle of truth around start dates, stop dates, you know, you name it, right? So, you know, that was the stuff that we're actually still, even, you know, today, we've come a long way in, you know, a few years, but we're still really wrestling aspects of that to the ground. I would imagine a huge source of competitive differentiation because, Yes, it's true that given one therapy or another, you can't have the implicit data or explicit data around how that therapy works. But being able to say, look, we can scalably and economically and repeatedly get you to, you know, deliver trials that are successful or and, you know, cost optimal in a world where this could t- cost you $2.5 billion is, is you know, incredible differentiation. What did that process look like for starting to collect that data internally? Did somebody come along and just say, hey, we should just be collecting all this data? And how did that process evolve? The data was forming in the management, the study management system, Satyan. It just wasn't governed. So it wasn't forming in a way that it was being prepared for additional use. So everything was, all the actions around that data, you know, would be taken on the basis of local reporting, for example. So the idea of, you know, seeming data from a study management system to data, you know, on our people resources, for example, we just were slow to anticipate that kind of future. So, you know, we had to create enterprise data models. We had to create standards, definitions. We had, you know, I would argue that our master data management system was optional, right? not required. So, you know, we had a lot we had to do to get the data to, you know, a common base where it could work together. Tell us a little bit about that emotional journey. Did everybody in the organization really understand that this change needed to happen? And what did that look like in terms of socializing with the or- within the organization that this evolution and maturity needed to take place? I use a cartoon still where, you know, the the top frame of the cartoon is who wants clean data and everybody in the crowd has their hand up, right? And then the next frame is who wants to clean their data and everyone's hand is down and they're looking at their shoes, right? And that, that was us. But basically, people wanted things to work, but, you know, their heads down in the business delivering this research. They don't really understand why the data, you know, isn't accurate can't, you know, work together, but they don't really care. Fix it, go fix it, right? Like, I've got to conduct this research. I have to make sure these patients are safe. I have to make sure it's getting done on time. I have to take care of these regulatory inspections. Go fix the data. Um, And so, you know, right out of the gate, uh, we recognized that our biggest hurdle was going to be enrolling people 
from the beginning and helping educate them as we went as to why their own actions were important and how it couldn't be done around them. They had to be part. Um, and so there was, you know, initial, you know, talking about some of our high profile advanced analytics initiatives and how they depended on interoperable data that met a certain standard and tracing that back to show them where that data was created and their, you know, therefore why their own actions mattered. Um, a lot of using examples of where things broke down and why that was, and so therefore how it would happen differently in a governed world. Michelle and her team also made sure they used language that encouraged buy-in across the organization. We were very much very careful about using language around data enablement, not data governance, right? It's, this isn't, yes, there's a certain amount of this, of course, that's about control, but it's control and service to the aims of the business. It's not, you know, it's not a gate control for the sake of pure defensive posture. As a business, we needed to be able to do more with our data. It's been an educational journey, and it had to be timed with the advanced analytics initiatives. Everybody was aware of, you know, what we were investing and why and the potential they held. Uh, and, you know, if we failed to bring them along on the data story with it, they, they were not going to succeed. So, Michelle and her team had a very significant challenge in front of them, which made me wonder, how big was her team? Did she have a small army? or something a bit more specialized? It's not an army, unfortunately. It's more like a uh, very small tactical team. <laughs> um, so, it, which we've built out as we went. You know, there were a lot of competing priorities as we started in the business, across the business, as we started. And so we grew as we went. And I would tell you that the central team is still only about 15 people. Basically, We've got a hub-and-spoke kind of a model here, and the data cuts across a variety of domains, but the domains transact around nodes of data. So the node being the patient, the node being a clinical site, the node being, you know, revenue or project management or project milestone, right? It's a multi-stakeholder environment across all those nodes and those systems. Remember, I was telling you kind of they all grew up independent of one another. They all have to work on a, off a data model that becomes harmonized, right, off of our common data store. So they all had to be at the table, right? If we were going to change the definition or if we were going to, let's not say change, let's say we were going to establish the first project start definition that was enterprise-wide because that's where we were, they all had to be determining the impact um, whether it could change in those systems or we had to do it in flight, in transformation, or whatever would need to happen. So basically, the, you know, the central team is surrounded um, by a group of senior leaders that are accountable for the successful use and enablement of our data across those domains. And then they're surrounded by a ring of um, technical data stewards and domain data stewards that are actually transacting and working with the data generators, et cetera, to bring the data to, to the enterprise uh, level profiles and requirements that we need, definitions. So that's how we act across the business. Our team is also small because while we're focused on policy, process, prioritization in the business, the, you know, addressing the needs adjudicating requirements, et cetera. 
when we started the journey, you know, the first realization was that um, we really needed to have three levels of conversation across the business. Their people just needed to be aware of what it was, you know, why we were doing it, why it was important, what was in it for them, why they needed to kind of come on this journey with us. Then there was that next level of operational engagement, people in the business who maybe are not technically data people, but they they have to deal with process and implementation and adoption and compliance, you know. And then there was a very specific set of trainings, et cetera, onboarding that really dealt with, with the technicians. We still today have to maintain those three levels of conversation so that we're speaking into the listening ear, depending on who a person is in the organization. Um, you know, we might have been temporary stewards of other people's data for a long time in our past, but what do we deal with? So many of us, there's 18,000 people worldwide here, pretty much everybody is either a data generator or a data consumer. So one of the, the biggest challenges, the things that kind of kept me up at night in the beginning was how do we address, how do we kind of enroll people so broadly across the world, so many roles, um, and begin to really affect change you know, in a very targeted way. How do we balance those two things? Um, and it was definitely, you know, the level of, of conversation that we were having. So day one, did you have, I mean, you, you basically highlighted two structures. The first was sort of a 101, 201, 301 kind of educational structure around the program and what that looked like. And I think it's helpful to get into details for the listeners around that. But also there was kind of this other organizational structure around domain ownership for the key data assets within the organization. Was that, oper- was that organizational and operational structure in place or did you have to put that in place? No, it wasn't in place. People probably, when we started, people wouldn't know where to go with that kind of request. It would come over as you know a request into IT, but how it would get shuttled and serviced could be different from one to the next. We did have data marts. We did have data warehouses, right? It wasn't as though it was completely the Wild West, but they were managed in the business rules that even today are executed in, in you know, where those things are still being used were self-contained, right? They kind of grew up within that, that team or, or in that system. Um, you had asked me on day one, what did it look like? Well, Day one just began this investigation of the current state, exactly what was going on. Did we have an MDM? It was like a, a closely held secret. I think if you weren't in corporate IT, you didn't know we had an MDM, right? So um, just trying to you know, figure all that out, trying to take account for the data models that were in place, trying to understand you know, how decisions had been made historically you know, in terms of... Um, flowing data from one system to the next, whether we could even see lineage, just, you know, affectionately, our systems architecture is, you know, was a bit of a Frankenstein creation. And we had to spend a lot of time manually with people doing interviews, uh, just getting that base state defined and figuring out where to go from there. Yeah, it's sort of like this kind of archaeology cross anthropology around like all of the data relics that existed in your organization. Did that process, how long did that process take you? It was probably, I want to tell you, it was the better part of nine months. I mean, it was, you know, 
just sheer force for six months and then a lot of refinement from there. And then, you know, we started moving into working with the domains to uh, create the enterprise definition. So they had never created an enterprise definition. You know, they didn't even understand why it was important. Who else did you partner with in the organization to shepherd it through that hard time? One nice thing about coming from the operations side of the business is that, you know, I've grown up in the leadership track. You know, there's there's been a lot of baptism by fire, bonded over fire, I think is, is the, uh, the saying I'm looking for. But, you know, I have a lot of peers who, you know, we understand what needs to happen. We have accountabilities, we have equal responsibility, but we talk the same language. And so the ability to address what is breaking down in the data and why we need to change in terms that they understood and, you know, regardless of where they sat in the business was really helpful and helped enroll them and kind of get us more aligned. So, you know, it's different. It's very different. Nobody wants to hear about your, you know, enterprise data model, but they do want to hear about, you know, why they can't get the same headcount forecast from two different systems and which one do they trust. You know, you just really have to speak to it in terms that matter and just translate it back to a set of root cause uh, changes or root cause issues with some some mechanistic changes. When did you get the first win? When did you sort of say, oh, there was like something here tangible that we could look at that everybody then said, hey, this is really adding value or some people at least. Yeah, it was really some of the launches of, well, you know, one advanced analytics uh, project in particular to consume data off of the data lake and, and the results mattering, the dashboard mattering right, that the, the teams were using to understand the risks and progress, the status of their studies. And it looked the same if you were a member of the team conducting the study, the data you saw was the same data that our CEO saw for the first time, right, as it rolled up. So there wasn't, you know, 100 separate reports around that study, which, you know, on any given day, we're doing 2,000, 2,500 studies you know, think about the cost to the business. Not only, you know, is there an issue with respect to reporting accuracy that we have to address, but think about all that separate manual reporting that was going on and multiply that by 2,000, 2,500, right? The opportunity is incredible. And do you look back on that experience and like in now, having had the wisdom of looking back to that moment in time, is there anything you would have done differently or any advice you would give to somebody who might be entering a situation that is similar to the one that you entered? So I don't feel that I'm through it. So I still feel, I still feel the anxiety that I felt then, although it shifted, the things that provoke the feeling are a little different. So then we didn't have a notion of an enterprise data model and we had to start from scratch. Now it's showing up in sort of more downstream problems where we go to make a change in a system to a new data scheme. And we don't, you know, you discover that in IT, we don't have a testing environment, right? We, you know, so now we have the ability, we can see ahead. So we want to make this change. And now we've never been in a position to work that way. We have now another fundamental thing that we've got to fix. It's a happy problem, I would say. But still, you know, it provokes some some angst still. You just, I don't know, if we looked at this on four or five levels of maturity, I still feel like 
we're maybe kissing too yet. We've got a ways to go, right? So, you know, with that said, what do I wish I did differently? I wish I was more aggressive. I wish I pushed harder. I wish we went faster. I would like us to be at a maturity level of three right now, you know, the better part of two concerted years in. I can imagine. And how would that have looked? Would that have been more analytical outcomes sooner? Would that have been driving standardization more aggressively? Would it have been more broadly publicizing the initiatives or all of the above? I mean, how, how, do you think about, how do you think about where you could have gone faster and where you would have wanted to go faster? I think I would have been more aggressive in two areas. And one would have been driving closer engagement with corporate IT more directly. You know, we did have a change in our CIO partway through that, this journey, which has made all the world of difference, has made all the world of difference. I feel like I have a, an unbelievable partner in our CIO to succeed together in what we want to do with our data. So that was a little bit outside of my control, but uh, what would have been inside my control is how our teams partnered beneath the old leadership, right? I would have been more aggressive there. I would have probably been more aggressive with respect to funding and you know the rate at which we grew the team. We took a very pragmatic approach. I was very respectful of everything else that was going on here. I wonder some days whether I was a little too respectful. There are two other topics I'd love to get your perspective on. This first is this, you know, this is a podcast about data culture. And so is this is culture something that you talk about internally? And how do you think about the cultural evolution? And obviously that's something that even your executive leadership team would be involved with. So how do you think about driving that internally? It's culture within a culture, really. Um, because as we've gone through these last few years going private etc. You know, we have worked very hard to reestablish our Paracel culture and how we operate. And there's really three major pillars to it. One is keeping the patient at the center of everything we, we do. The other is being easier to do business with. So more accessible, doing a better job, just ease in the way of working. And then the third is leveraging our expertise. Well, think about those three things, right? They lend themselves greatly to what we need to transform with the respect with respect to our data culture and how people need to think about that. We cannot be easier to do business with if we can't better access and utilize our own data. We can't leverage our expertise if we can't find it, right? <laughs> if I go back to the diabetes example, Satyan, you know, for a pharma company that's developing the next generation, you know, anti-diabetic treatment, they have one, maybe two, maybe three compounds in development. Any single CRO is probably seeing twice, three times that number. The amount of experience that we sit on in terms of what worked in studies and what didn't is far greater, right? We have to be bringing that to bear to do our part to design the next studies better. And then last but not least, that you know, to be at a state of readiness to be able to safely and in a trusted way, deploy new methodologies so we we're getting therapies to the patients that need them more affordably, faster. You know, it, it requires a change in the way we we treat our data as an asset. And so we we do talk about it like that. We try to make the connections. To your values and to your operating principles. Do you feel like, you know, now in three, year three of the journey, do you feel like you've your work is accelerating? 
Yes, all of a sudden, on both sides too, with the real world data and data governance. It's just, it's a hard case to build, right? We need to improve our data quality. Like, what do you mean, right? We need to, we need to have data standards. What do you mean? Why, right? For a lot of people who are distant from the requirements. I would say another challenge that people in roles like ours face is that the first 12, maybe 15, you know, in our instance, maybe 18 months of foundational work is all cost with almost like very little value or the wins are, the wins are small compared to what you're building, right? And then you hit this tipping point where you, you can begin to open up access and you begin to open up utility and then you can really like feel that momentum start to build and people, you're not pushing people, right? They're pulling you now. So, you know, I feel like we're at that point in, in both areas right now. Michelle's experiences at ParExcel can be a guiding light for anyone leading transformation at their organization. A lot of her experience was based on her willingness to challenge conventional wisdom and bust some myths about how to use data well. Got any more data myths that you want us to bust? Post them in social media with the hashtag data radicals. We can't wait to hear what you have to say. This is Satyan Sangani, co-founder and CEO of Alation. Thank you to Michelle for joining us on this episode of Data Radicals. And thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Are you a CDO or aspiring leader in data? Learn how you can cultivate a data-driven organization in this white paper from Gardner. Get it at alation.com slash GDC. That's alation with an A dot com slash GDC.